The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Well, welcome to OPCC. It's good to see you all today in this uh, lovely weather we're experiencing this weekend in Kansas City. And uh, one important thing, like go Chiefs, right? Yeah. Uh, So looking forward to the game today and thankful for the um, uh, for Baltimore laying an egg last night, right? Hopefully we can get our work done. But um, I'm going to talk to you today. We're going to jump right back in our text. We've been going through Acts, okay, and learning about the kingdom, how it moves, how it works. And so this week we're in Acts chapter 19. We pick up in verse 23. It's kind of a, kind of a fascinating passage of Scripture that really talks a lot more about people who aren't in the kingdom than it does people who are. And so we get a, we get a good look at... Um, people outside of the kingdom and some things that causes them to remain outside the kingdom. And so uh, today, um, like just to get us started, there's a pretty cool um, directional passage out of 1 Kings. And sometimes you may feel like, man, what, like how did I get in this place? Like what, like, I, what have I done with my life? What, what is going on? I've lived up to this point. Like what, what, like what, what has happened? Uh, maybe you're at a place where you're starting out in life and you're like, well, you know, what, what, is, what is happening? What's going to happen? Where am I headed? And so these, these can be uh, uh, questions that, that I think are good for us to, ex- to ask ourselves. And so sometimes we might wonder, like, what would the Lord say to us in moments like that where we're confused? And so... The prophet Elijah has a moment where the Lord, it, like the word shows us exactly what um, uh, he, would, he would say to us in that moment. Elijah has had this experience where he's had a, a big move of the Lord, and then he finds himself getting afraid, and so he runs, and uh, he ends up hiding um, in a cave, okay? And so the Lord says to him, like the, it says in verse, uh, this is in 1 Kings chapter uh, 19, it says, The Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So here's Elijah. He's hanging out in this cave. He's been afraid, and he's he's hiding there. And he gets a word from the Lord that says, go outside and, and look. And it says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So a lot of times we say, man, like the Lord... He, he's a, he's, he uses a still, small voice to speak to us. And you'll hear this passage um, quoted a lot about how the, it comforting it is that the Lord is not in these violent things. He's in the gentle blowing of the wind. But, uh, but sometimes when we're using this passage, we stop right there. What did the Lord say in that gentle blowing wind? And what would, might he say to us as we're in this place of confusion? He says to Elijah, when he heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out, and he stood at the mountain of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so the Lord would say to us, what in the world are you in this place for? 
And I think that's a good thing for us to ask ourselves is, especially when we get into these places where we feel like we're directionalists, we're, we're asking ourselves, how did I end up here in my life? What, what is going on? The Lord would say, what, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this place? And, and I think that as we look at today's text, we see the power of influence. Like influence is a very powerful thing. And there are, there, are, there are two types of influence. There's internal influence, how we influence ourselves, what we say to ourselves, how we think about things, the way we approach life. And then there's external influence. There's people around us, there's people like myself. You come here on a weekly basis, um, you listen to the teaching, and I'm influencing you. And so you have friends that you listen to, and they influence you. You have shows that you watch, and it influences you. Um, and so there are, there's external influences constantly speaking uh, into us, and there's internal influence that we have of ourselves, of how we approach a particular thing, and we think through it and use a, a, whatever pro- thought process we use. And so today we look at our text in, in Acts chapter 19, and we see uh, the power of influence and the, and the importance of protecting ourselves with good decisions. So especially here, man, like if you're, if you're a younger person, ages 16 to 26, that's, that's like the most critical decade of your life, like whether you realize it or not. You're going to make decisions generally between the ages of 16 and 26 to set the course of your life um, until you die. Like who you're going to marry, what you're going to do for a career, where you're going to go to school, where you're going to live. A lot of these things like are made in this critical decade. And so it's important for you to think about the things that are influencing you right now. Um, the people that you surround yourself with, they're speaking into your life as you make these very important decisions that chart out the rest of your life. If you're past that decade and you're beyond it, um, you have chosen influencers in your life. And they are speaking into your life and they're having an impact on the trajectory of where you are headed. And the Lord might be looking at you and saying, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing in this particular place in your life? And so as we go back to our text in Acts chapter 19 and begin to unpack this passage of scripture about these these people who were not part of the kingdom and we see that they really are led astray, there are some observations that I want to make that I I, I think are helpful for us to think about the Lord asking, what, what are we doing here in this particular place in our lives? And so we, we jump in in verse 23, and it says that, and it's really cool. Like, Paul has had these experiences, and this riot breaks out in, town, in this town of, in the city of Ephesus. And it says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, what is the way? The way is what they called Christians. Why? They generally, as Jesus said, um, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so they first were known, people who followed Jesus were known as people of the way. Later they became, uh, call, they, they, they came to be known as Christians, but here they're referring to believers as people of the way. And it says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Meaning like he was kind of probably the head of a trader's guild. Like he was, he was involved in the economy uh, of this, this city. And he called them together along with the workmen in related trades. And he said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul 
has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so we have some false worship going on in this area. And what, what, what we know about um, historically is that this city uh, held one of the seven wonders of the world, the great temple to, the, uh, uh, to Artemis. And so they had this, most scholars believe that this meteorite fell. And when it fell, it had a unique shape to it. And they placed it in this temple and they worshiped it as the goddess of fertility. It was a, it was a, it, they, it was sort of uh, looked like a female with many breasts, and so they named it the goddess of fertility, and they worshiped this thing. And so Paul comes into town, and he starts teaching people about the gospel of Christ. And as he's teaching them, they're getting free freedom in their lives as they surrender to Christ, and they're born again, as Jesus said would happen, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what happens is they walk away from this pagan worship, and they quit buying the little shrines, and they quit buying the things um, uh, that, that uh, they would take back home. They would make pilgrimages to this place, and a lot of times they would buy these little shrines, these little silver shrines, and they would take them back home as, uh, 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 to serve as a memory, to demonstrate to their friends back home that they had actually been there, and so it was kind of a souvenir uh, uh, experience as well. And so this was, this was really impacting the economy of the guys who made these things. And Demetrius recognizes this. And so he goes and he calls all these guys together who are involved in this trade. And he says, look, fellas, we got a problem here. This guy is preaching this stuff and people are walking away from um, our worship that we've known all of our, our lives. And it's impacting us significantly uh, economically. And it says when they heard this, and, and, he, and he begins to talk about how it's not only impacting us financially, it's impacting um, the God whom we've chosen to worship. And it says when, we heard, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. And the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Don't go in there, bro. Like it was, it was bad. They feared for Paul's life, and they feared that he would be the lightning rod, and they would, they would kill him. And so they talked him out of going. And it says the assembly, and now when we talk about assembly, there was, there was probably, this place held about 25,000 people. Okay, so there were thousands of people that just the city just all of a sudden ended up in this place as this riot broke out. And it says the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. And most of the people didn't even know why they were there. And the Jews pushed Alexander to the front. And some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours. Kind of like the Chiefs game, right? They just shouted for two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. 
Just stop and think about the absurdity of that. A guy's getting up, he's about to speak, they see that he's a Jew, and they just break out shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and this goes on for two hours. And then the city clerk finally quieted the crowd, and he said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges if there is anything, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the the assembly. Now, why was he so concerned? Well, because Rome had given them a certain amount of freedom, and they were jeopardizing it because they were losing control of the city. This this mob was breaking out, and this mob mentality. So he kind of gets control of it, and he says, man, these guys are bringing an accusation against Paul and them, and this is not the place for this to happen. If they want to bring this accusation, there are legal ways to go about that, but we cannot do that here on our own. And so we see in this as these guys were ministering for the Lord, we see some of the prophecy or the promise that God had told Paul that he had many people in this city and no harm would come against him. We see protection coming to Paul. This, this whole experience was being uh, put to rest. And we look at this and we see there are a lot of things here about these people that I think are important for us in our day and age. Um, and so I'm going to give you a few observations and hopefully they will encourage you and help you Uh, make good decisions in your life. Here's the first observation I look and make from this text. When it comes to the gospel, it either produces joy or it makes people angry. When you take the gospel in its rawest form of what it means that Jesus is God, he becomes king, and we yield to that, and the good news is we can receive him as king, but that means that we become servants of his in the kingdom. So we don't become the ones in the kingdom who tell Jesus how it's going to be, We serve Jesus, and he tells us how it's going to be. And so when a person understands the Lord's grace and all its truth, what happens is they they recognize that they are sinners. They also recognize that Jesus came to die to set um, people who are captive to their sin free from it. So he comes to forgive us. And so when that happens and we recognize, the, the Scripture talks about it in Colossians, is that people come to understand the Lord's grace and all its truth. Like when, you, when the lights come on for you and you realize that you are a broken individual that is offensive to God because you have sin in your life. Now, again, the scripture teaches there's no one without sin. So we all have sin in our lives. And when we come to this, this awakening, this realization and understand that the gospel is all about the grace of the Lord covering that sin and forgiving us, then the response is one of, of joy. <laughs> like I, I will never forget when I, when I really came um, at, a, at, at the age of 22 to an understanding of what this meant for me in my life. Now, I became a Christian at a younger age and had a rebellious time in my life, but when I really came to a, 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 an awareness of the grace of God, 
and that I was, I was running amok with my life. I had no time for Jesus. It was all about Jimmy. And when I got to a place where I was really broken in my life and, and I started listening as Elijah does in that cave and he starts to speak to me and ask me, what are you doing here? My answer was, I have no idea. What am I doing here? Why am I living this way? Why am I living like I believe in you, but if you look at all of my life, none of it measures up as though I'm obedient to you. I'm doing whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, and however I want to do it. And the Lord would say, what are you doing here? And I was like, I don't know. Okay? And so I, I finally was like, man, what am I doing here? If this, is, if this is what I believe, if I sincerely believe that Jesus was God in the flesh and he died for my sins, then he is worthy of everything that is inside of Jimmy Holbrook. And so I repented of the way that I was living. And as I repented of the way that I was living and came to that understanding of the grace that the Lord was wanting to forgive me and help me walk down this path that he had laid out for me, then what happened is the joy of the Lord flooded my soul. Like, like I, just, I just started smiling. Man, I was so happy. Like, I start to talk about it. You see, I get a little giddy because it's still there, man. Like, the Lord still fills me with joy. Joy is one of the most important things about um, the kingdom of God. It is, it is the source for our ability to have the strength that we need to go through the battles that we face. We see Paul face battles right and left over and over. They were, he would get a victory, and then he would find opposition. Opposition was just always there. And how did he and the early believers navigate through that opposition? It is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so whenever we understand the gospel and we recognize really what it means for us, it equals joy for us. And so we just, man, we're just, we're just thrilled on the inside. And, and we understand there's something that's been put in us that is not from this world. And so when I talk about joy, I'm not talking about an earthly definition of joy. I'm not talking about, oh, man, I felt really good and warm inside, and that made me happy on my birthday when I opened that present. I'm talking about something that is there when, when things are totally a mess in my life. When things look like they're out of control. They look like nothing is for me, but somehow, some way, there is a joy inside of me that is enabling me to navigate and move through the mess. That's what the believer has promised. And so when we come to a clear understanding of the gospel and we see that that joy, uh, or we see who Jesus is, and we receive Jesus and we lay down our lives, then that joy, Jesus even said it this way, his, 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 um, his prayer for us is that his joy may be made complete in us. And when we walk out in obedience, what he calls us to, that's what happens. However... If the gospel is not received, and so we hear that good news like I just presented it, and we turn a deaf ear to it, and we turn away from it, and we don't receive it, then it tends to make people angry. Now, why is that the case? And I think it's important for us to understand this about the gospel. These are the two responses to it, that once we receive it, it creates joy. If we reject it, it makes people angry. Why does it make people angry? Because the gospel always confronts religion and sin. It always like meets a person right head on and it forces them to confront the religious belief that they have. That's what's going on in this text. It is confronting their false religion. 
and it is confronting the sin in their lives. The second thing is, is it forces people to recognize the inadequacy of their worldview. When you really begin to look at the, the gospel, just like I talked about in my testimony, I had to look at my worldview and say, you know what? I'm saying that I'm a believer. I'm saying that I, li- I believe in Jesus. But if I look at my life and the way that I live it, my worldview is one such that I want Jesus to forgive me on my sin, but I really don't have any time for Jesus. Why? Because I love Jimmy. And that's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, what must you do? Die to yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me. And so like, what happens is, is that when the gospel penetrates a person, if they don't respond to it in a positive manner, they respond to it negatively, it forces them to recognize the inadequacy of their worldview, and they don't like what they hear, and so they begin to get angry. And so what is one of the things they say? Oh, that church is just filled with hypocrites. And so this is what I want to say to y'all about OPCC. It is not filled with hypocrites, okay? I, I, I believe that with all my heart. But it is filled with a whole bunch of messed up people, okay? Uh, and that's the authenticity of the gospel as we recognize that, hey, man, it is not our righteousness that puts us in a right standing with the Lord. It is the righteousness of Christ. But a person will often say this about people in the church. Why? Because they're angry that they have been forced um, to deal with their worldview. They don't like where they've landed because of the gospel has forced them to do that. And so they look at the Lord's people, his body, and they start talking bad about his bride, which gives them an excuse to continue on in their worldview, thinking they are making the right decision. People do this all the time, okay? You may be doing that even here this morning. And then the third thing is why it makes people angry is because it exposes the emptiness of their lifestyle. Like nothing will expose the emptiness of your lifestyle like the gospel. As we look to Jesus and he talks about all this completeness and contentment and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we we look at our lives and we feel like, man, I'm not getting any of that stuff that Jesus is talking about that he offers. It is the gospel penetrating in our, our hearts and showing us that there's something lacking in our lives. And what is the one thing lacking? Not like No, what is lacking is Jesus is not on the throne, you are. You are on the throne by allowing something else to influence you and lead you in life, and that keeps you in this place uh, of emptiness. And so we have to keep this in mind for two things. One, when we're going through the process of receiving the gospel. So today, as I talk about the gospel and that Jesus wants to do a work in your life, these are some responses that you may internally be experiencing it as, I, as I talk about it. You may walk out of here, and if you reject the truth of the word, then you, there's a good chance that you could get angry. You could get angry about what I'm saying. Like you might even get angry like when I say this. Watch this. The gospel, according to Jesus, there is only one way to get in heaven, which means that every other religion, Muslim, whatever it might be, that does not claim that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, and and to the life, is going to hell. Oh, man, I can't believe that guy said that. You believe such narrow-minded people. See, the gospel forces people. Like, that's not me being narrow-minded. If you really want to say something is narrow-minded, then call Jesus narrow-minded. Don't call the pastor at OPCC narrow-minded. I'm just following Jesus. Okay, and so it tends to do that. It tends to penetrate and go, man, 
It either makes us uh, angry or it makes us burdened for, for people that we want to share the gospel with them. And so we see this and we see the gospel either produces one of these two things. Here's the other observation, very important. The enemy is always seeking to stir up opposition to the way. It says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, I don't know how many times, I haven't counted, but we are in um, Acts chapter 19, and this just keeps happening over and over and over and over and over and over. Opposition, 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 opposition. And what do we learn? When you surrender to the Lord, don't be surprised by the stir. As a matter of fact, the more committed you are to the Lord, the more aggressively you can expect the enemy to stir things up in your life. Why? Because he's wanting to get you to a place where you say, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. He's wanting to get you distracted. He wants to get you discouraged. He wants to get you back into that state of sleep that you're in where you're just living like everybody else and you're not operating according to the principles of the kingdom and finding the movement of the Lord happening in your life. And so what happens is he starts to stir things up. And so my, my encouragement to you is today is if you look at your life and you see where you feel like, man, the enemy's trying to discourage me right here and stir things up, you need to be encouraged by that. You need to be encouraged when you feel like you're facing opposition because everything we read in the New Testament, we see that people that were of the way were always facing opposition from the enemy. He's always trying to stop. Stop what? The movement of the Lord. Why would he be concerned about stopping the movement of the Lord? Because he's out to rob God from all of his glory. And so he wants to get men to focus on and women to focus on things that don't matter in this world. And as he does that and he gets them tripped up and focusing on themselves, then what happens is the Lord, the king of glory, no longer gets glory from our lives. And if he's not getting it, the enemy's getting it. See, there's a celestial battle that we're waging constantly in life, and it's happening daily as you go and you fulfill the responsibilities to earn a living um, for your family. It's happening in your career. It's happening in your hobbies. It's happening in uh, your neighborhood. It's happening in, in the places you go. It's just constantly happening. It's happening in our, 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 our country. Like, it's just constantly happening, and we need to realize the enemy is seeking to stir up opposition to the way. And so instead of getting discouraged by the opposition, what I want you to do as the people of the Lord is to be encouraged by it and know that it's coming. Don't be surprised that it's coming. Like, I, I promise you that. And the more serious you get about serving the Lord, the more intense that opposition can be. Now, I'm, I'll be, jeez, uh, I'll be 50 in a couple of weeks. <laughs> How did I get 50, man? Um, and so anyways, I've been doing this for uh, about 30 years. I have been sold out to the Lord, man, just sold out. And there used to be a time where Abby and I, we would have these discussions and we would tell ourselves when we first started pastoring a church back in 1999, we were young. I was 29. Um, she's a lot younger than me. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, we were babies. We were, man, the church was growing, and all of a sudden, something bad would happen. We go, what? I said, we just got to press through this. It's going to get better. And then we'd go, and then, it's, then something would happen to this family. We'd go, what the heck, man? We just got to keep going. It's going to get better. And then we finally realized uh, a couple of years in, this is never getting better. Like, it's always going to be like this, and it always has been. There's always been opposition to the ministry that we've been involved in because the Lord has always used us to help people walk in freedom. 
We've never been about just trying to, uh, tr- trying to grow an organization and have a crowd of people. We've always been about individuals coming to a place where the truth impacts their lives and they're set free from their sin and they start walking in this freedom. And so the enemy has always been trying to stir up things uh, in our ministry. Here's the third takeaway. When cash is king, Jesus will not be. When cash is king in your life, Jesus will not be. Young people, as you're making decisions, you need to make your decisions not based on how much cash you can make in your life, but on how much freedom you will have to serve Jesus as king. Now, the beauty is, is when you yield to Jesus first and seek him first, there's a good chance that some of you may make tons of money, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong when you start telling Jesus, I'll have time for you when I make me some cash. Okay? That's what's going on in this passage of Scripture is these people were totally consumed by things. Little silver things. Little shrines they had made to the goddess of Artemis. Okay? And so when you look at this, it not only was about a worship experience, it was about materialism for these, for these people because it added to their lives. As they sold the little tokens, they were able to buy things for their family. And so there was something that was impacting. The gospel was beginning to directly impact their livelihood. And they also um, worshiped these things. And so we look at that and we go, how in the world could people worship and make a decision? I would never do that. I would never um, worship a little shrine and put it before Jesus. No, I don't think you would. But I do think you would put cars and homes and trips and things of this nature because it happens all the time. And there's no difference. What do we, whatever we worship is whatever we place on the throne of our lives. Now, does it mean that those things are bad? No, it means that Jesus must be on the throne first, and all of that other stuff begins to yield to his leading of our lives. And so often we will compromise our obedience to Christ in order to achieve something that we want materialistically in life. And when, when cash is king, Jesus will not be. This is why he says to us, one of the most important verses Jesus talks about, where your treasure is there your heart will be also does that mean Jesus is trying to get your money no he's trying to get you to look at your heart whatever is the most important to you is what is king and so he's saying man you have to love me more than you love anything and so we have to look at that and go man these people they they didn't learn that lesson and that's what led them so far astray here's another observation for you this is very important and I think it's extremely important in the community that we live in A great number of people believing something doesn't make it true. Just because there's a bunch of people that believe something doesn't make it true. It's easy to fall victim to crowd mentality. And so we look at it, and sometimes it's easy for us as humans to go, man, there's so many people following that, it must be right. But the truth of the matter is, is great leaders are on both sides of truth, and they are extremely influential. And great leaders can lead great numbers of people astray. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm getting a little more bold in this because I feel like the Lord is leading me to. There is a person in our community that is aggressively leading people away from truth. And you know people that are a part of that, that influence. Now, I say that because I'm not wanting to wage war. I'm saying, man, look at the word. We have to look at the word and understand how the Lord is calling us to yield to it because when we start to twist things around and change it, then it causes trouble, what, for people. And so we got to go, man, um, as we look at this, we have to recognize, first of all, that people will give an account. 
Okay, so we're not to be the person who tries to give, make a person give an account at that point in time. But we have to understand that, ah, man, like this is confusing. It's confusing what's happening, and we have to have a heart for what's happening and be burdened by it. So I'm going to show that, like I've been burdened by it for years, and don't, I don't talk about it a whole lot, but I start to look and I go, man, if I don't start teaching the people the Lord has put around me, they're going to get confused. And the last thing the Lord wants from us is confusion. The, the Bible says that, the, that God is not the author of confusion. And so I have, a, I have a responsibility to bring clarity to you about what it means to follow Jesus in all that he says that he is and, and yield to the word in all that it teaches. And so we have to look and we go, man, all right, like people will give an account. And so we have to understand that as people place themselves under that position of influence, there must be a burden for us about, okay, how can the Lord use me to help bring clarity? Because you know what? Let me just, man, I didn't see any of this coming, but here we go. I believe one of the reasons the Lord called me this community is this very thing right here, to bring clarity around the truth of the word of God in an age of moral relativism. It doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere in it. It certainly matters what you believe. If it doesn't matter what you believe, like, like if, if the word, if we don't have the word to keep us, like if you begin to rely on me and I begin to move away from the word, like, like the way that you know you can rely on me is that I'm relying on the word. And I'm being true to the word. And the scripture says, man, when a person starts to move away from that, then you have to recognize it and you flee from that. Okay? So a great number of people believing something doesn't make it true. Here's the fourth um, or fifth. I don't even know, but we got a couple more to go. Let's get there. Predispositions keep people from the truth. All right? So... These people had a predisposition, and you say, where do you see that? Well, they had a predisposition when it says that the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowds shouted instructions to him. And and so he was going to get up, and he was going to make a speech. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They had a predisposition about this gentleman's identity so that they would not even listen. The scary thing is, is that most of the time predispositions are based on feelings, how I feel about something. And what frustrates me and what I want you to do as a body of believers is really to dig into the, the biblical doctrine of love, okay? Because the things that are being influencing our culture right now, beyond even our community, is we're calling that we have to love. And of course we do. Like, if we don't love, like, they're, they're, like, that is essential. But there is a biblical doctrine of love. And love doesn't mean acceptance. As a matter of fact, sometimes love means that we don't accept things. Because if we, if we're, like, we, look at your own family. 
To love your children means that you are going to guide them and discipline them and you don't just accept everything. And if you do accept everything, you're a terrible parent. And the scripture teaches us that specifically. And so we can't come into things with a predisposition about how we feel because a lot of times it gets confusing as we're listening to something described and go, man, oh yeah, we, we, we gotta love, we gotta love. Yes, we gotta love. We are, to call, we are called to love our enemies. But loving things and condoning things are two very different th- things. And as we dive in and make a, uh, 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 we draw a biblical and logical conclusion about the biblical doctrine of love, we'll see that sometimes it is hard to love. Sometimes it calls for us to do difficult things. Sometimes it calls for us to speak the truth in love. And so predisp- predispositions keep us from the truth. And the word teaches us, um, and as we think about, okay, predispositions are based on feelings. In Proverbs 3, uh, 3 and 5, it says, trust in the Lord. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because your emotions will betray you. Your emotions will lead you down to a place where you feel a certain a way about things and you have to understand your emotions cannot be uh, trusted. And so it's important for us to lose our predispositions. Why? So that we can be open to the word transforming our lives. You see, I yield to the word, and I'm in the word, and I read the word, and why do I do that? Am I trying to be a good person? No. I'm trying to protect myself from my own subjective feelings. If if the church were run by my feelings, and if my marriage were run by my feelings, um, then it would just all be about me. But the word, as I read it, it begins to point error out in my life. As I wash myself in the power of the word, and I'm, 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 I'm approaching it as my objective standard of reality, the Holy Spirit's job is to teach me how to walk through in obedience what the word is calling me to yield to. And as I do that, then what happens is I start recognizing I'm kind of mean to that guy who cut me off on 69 the other day. And the word convicts me. And so what I have to do is like the next time somebody cuts me off, I remember, man, I was in the word. And the Lord told me I'm to love everybody, my enemies, even that joker that cut me off. And so the next time he cuts me off and I want to give him the one finger wave, I go, that's not who I am. I belong to Jesus. And I repent of my thoughts. And guess what I just did? I loved that guy like Jesus loved him. And so we, we are, that's why the power of the word is so essential for us is because predispositions always keep us from the truth. And so we can't come at the word with predispositions. We have to let the word speak for what it is because it is much older than all of us. And when we begin to twist it, we're beginning to twist the very thing that teaches us about the freedom and forgiveness that we find in Jesus. Here's the um, last takeaway before the big idea. Lack of truth always leads to greater confusion. Lack of truth always leads to greater confusion. Verse 29 says, there was an uproar. It comes from the Greek word synchysis, and it means literally confusion. And so verse 32 is crazy because it teaches us that most of the people had no idea why they were there. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that other than just to point this out. There was confusion. Most of the people were caught up in the confusion, and they had no idea why they're there. Were they responsible? 
And the answer is absolutely. Oftentimes I will hear things like, um, you know, let me give you the big idea and I'll, I'll go into this. Here's the big idea. Wherever you go, there you are. All right? Now, I preached a sermon titled this a couple of years ago, but it was totally different, all right? Good title, though. I used to play a little golf before I took up bow hunting. And, man, sometimes you really want to hit that ball hard, especially when your buddy makes a good drive. And go in the woods, and buddy would look at you, and he'd say, wherever you go, there you are. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that that can be frustrating. But it was mostly the internal influence that I put on that ball that put me over there in that timber. Wanting to do something, having a desire. And so when we look at all of these things that I'm talking about, and we, we, we talk about this greater confusion, um, people will be held responsible for where they are. And a lot of times I hear things, well, I don't agree with everything, but look at all the good that is happening. I don't agree with everything, but I continue to because, listen, if you are a part of something, you do agree with it whether you want to or not. And that's where I'm talking about the, the confusion. It is important the decisions that we make. It is important the places that we put our families under these powerful influences because it leads us in a, dir a direction. And what we want to be led in is a trajectory toward truth that brings about freedom in our lives. So if we're talking about non-essential things, like some people, what is a non-essential thing? Well, some people have a, a belief about the way one should dress or not, Okay. And that's a non-essential. And so there's liberty in that. But when we're talking about changing fundamental doctrines of the truth of the word of God, then people will be held accountable for where they place themselves and they will be a part of what is being done that brings about harm to the truth of the word of God. And so I'm thankful today for you. I'm thankful that you call this place home. I'm thankful that you want a pastor that preaches the truth. And that's always what I'm going to do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about, man, did I offend you? Did I, did I hurt a visitor's feelings? Like, that's not my job. Like, my job is to be true to the word. And when I, I have one person in mind when I'm preaching, and it's Jesus. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what anybody sitting here thinks. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is that when I go home, and I sit down in my recliner, did I stay true to Jesus? Because he is Lord and I'm not. And when I start getting worried about what everybody else thinks and worried about trying to do all of these things to cater to people, then I've lost the whole purpose of why I'm in the ministry in the first place. I'm in the ministry to be faithful to Jesus. I've yielded to him. He's my king and he has called me to lead his sheep to be faithful to him the same way. And I'm telling you, man, if you love our country, and I love our country, all right? I love America. But she's confused. Like she has no moral, no, 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 no moorings, no, no, nothing to tie to, nothing to hold her. And we are, we're, we're pointing at all these things. We're going, well, it's because the Democrats are so liberal. Or it's because the Republicans are so blind. 
It's Donald Trump. It's Barack Obama. It's the believer not following Jesus. That's the problem with America. So if you love her and want to see her flourish, then the greatest thing you could do for our country is yield to Jesus as your king and follow him faithfully on a daily basis. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.